Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. I am your trusty host, <laughs> Ashley Loeblassingame. The trusty's back. And this, what episode is this? 6.5. This is 6.5. We're going to talk about trauma. We're going to talk about Dave. Talk about life, liberty, and, and pursuit of happiness. happiness. So a good episode. Yeah, it'll be a good. It'll be good. So, all right, episode six point five. Let's do this. We don't do that. We don't. No. Okay. We. But don't. I liked it. You can take it. We can start. <laughs> I don't care. We can take it out. <laughs> okay. So we had Dave last week. He had an incredible story. He grew up with these hippie biker parents. That was kind of neat. That was an aspect of a story that we haven't had yet. Is the hippie biker part. The hippie biker parents. The hippie bike. How many times can you say hippie, hippie biker, biker parents. parents? Hippie, hippie biker, biker parents. parents. Oh, we're good. That was really good for two. So what was really interesting about that, and we will talk about the rest of his episode, but what was really interesting for me about that was, and I, I was just listening to something else, someone else, another podcast talking about trauma, and that the most traumatized people don't see themselves as having experienced any trauma. And... That is relevant because I felt like I heard a bit of defensiveness around his family and like the way that they grew up and and him really wanting us to know that he had a normal childhood. And it felt to me like from what he shared that he did not have a normal childhood, including large pieces of memory missing. And so I thought that was really interesting. Those are all signs of trauma and it wouldn't have been a stretch if given the scenarios that he was in, there had been some trauma. So it was just a really interesting thing to hear because I think we all, we are all very protective of our families and our parents. I mean, if you're married, you understand what that's like to defend your family, even over things that you agree with your significant other about. You're like, okay, I can say that, but you can't say that. Yeah. So I think there's kind of some of that going on. That was just what I heard. I thought that it was really interesting. Um, I loved how he said that he has an emotional peanut allergy to being uncomfortable. So related to that. So, so related to that. Like just anaphylaxis from from discomfort, the inability to deal with it. And then he also talked about knowing he's a drug addict, but the alcohol was okay. And that, you know, I relate to that tremendously. And I know a lot of people do where they're, you know, okay, fine. I I won't do drugs, but I'm going to drink. And that ends up getting out of control too. But there's this desire to hang on to that. What else did I hear? What else did you hear? What'd you hear? Well, going back to the the hippie biker kind of... Hippie biker parents. Hippie biker parents. Upbringing. <laughs> that could be really tough to say really fast. But I won't try it. Yeah, falling asleep. I mean, Cook's Corner, so we both live pretty close to it. Cook's Corner is a, a little area in a place called Tribuco Canyon, California, which is in, in Orange County. Yeah. And it's basically like a little dive bar. It's just... Well, it's like a dive very, biker bar. Right. A dive biker bar really well-known across Orange County, and it, it's not, I mean, not attacking his parents at all, but it's not normal for a child to be going to a bar with their parent and then falling asleep in the booth and then being you know, parted at home that, the next day. Right. So that was one incident, right? And mm-hmm. it, it was, but it was the one he chose to share with us. Right. And what I found to be more interesting was he and his brother were at the parties where they were doing meth all night. 
Yes. So and like they were there. He didn't he, know why. He didn't they were know up why they were up all night. Mm-hmm. So there was exposure, and and right. there is, I mean, there is data to back up that you know there is some there are effects of exposure to this, and he you know and over time I think that that kind of exposure, and then so there was the, there were those pieces that kind of tipped me off to something, but then there was the I have a large stretch where I don't have any memory at all. Yes. Which is a very common strategy that the brain uses to cope with trauma. Right. And then I think I remember him also saying that he felt like he may or may not have had he said he, he had a vision. Not, but he he definitely said he had a vision. That something, of something would have happened. Yeah, right. But yeah. that there's there was something traumatic that did happen, but he didn't disclose what that was, which is okay. Right. Yeah. Everybody doesn't oh, yeah. disclose every aspect of their story. But still, there's definitely, just like you said, a lot yeah. of little kind of timeline things that say, you know, this could have been like traumatic exposure. You know, yeah. Or trauma from the exposure of. Yeah, I think I think that it's normal to want to want your childhood to be like you know, and definitely oh. to want to protect your parents, especially if yes. your relationship is good with them. Yes. Um, and if you're a parent, you are hesitant to criticize other parents because you realize how hard it is. Sure. That's another, I mean, that's been my experience of, you know, becoming a parent and going, well, my, you know, okay, I understand how my parents got to this decision or what have you. Um, I finally do understand how children have horrendous haircuts. I would look at these pictures of my husband and and I've seen other kids too, and I'm like, this is unex. This is child abuse. This haircut <laughs> is child haircut. abuse. How did this happen? Like, what were the circumstances that led up to this particular haircut? And now I completely understand. It's like, well, my kid has a mullet, and I don't have time to deal with it, and they won't sit for the haircut, so I'm not going to deal with it. And then, but yeah, and then the next thing you know, you're taking family photos with the mullet, and you're like, well, the photo person's here, the kid's got a mullet, we're doing this. And then there you go, it's, it's, there it is. So I have a deep understanding for how bad haircuts come to be. Um, I don't think I'll ever forgive my mother for the puff bangs. Ooh, brutal. pretty bad. I have like bone straight hair, super long. I mean, down to like my very lower back, very long hair. And then just these bangs that just, you know. <laughs> I'm quit. picturing it and that's really amazing. I have pictures. Yeah. And they're horrendous. Yes. It, it's just, it's so, I mean, it's not cute. Like my mom says it was cute. It was yeah. not cute. Was, I, have, I have a lot I mean, of. Uh, answers, but <laughs> I got some good, I I got some good ones. I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, no, the bangs are bad. So you'll never forgive her. Well, I shouldn't say that. I, I I do forgive her for the bangs. It's just a choice that I I I question. I definitely question yeah. her hair choices, and she's not allowed to touch my hair yeah, to this I, day. Yeah, sure. yeah, I get that. I get that. So you know, things happen, right? We, you know, <laughs> you you become a parent, and you start to understand these life decisions that were made in the heat of the moment, and um, yeah. So I think that. There was a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff to unpack in his. <laughs> there was a lot. This was this was a good long interview. Yeah, Kinda, yeah. I, w- I was excited about this one. And I loved it was our first guy. Too. I, I was just gonna say I loved having a guy and getting the male perspective. And I, you know, I always talk about how, you know, I grew up in twelve steps. So you know, I went to my first twelve step meeting when I was fifteen years old, and obviously now I'm twenty, and. Uh, <laughs> So, um, I age incredibly, yeah, I'm forever 21, (laughs) except I don't fit in their clothes. Perfect. Okay. (laughs) Moving on. So what was I saying? Dave. 
our first guy, 12 step. Oh, so I grew up in 12 step. And what I love about that is the men in 12 step have this, have been trained, have this ability to show emotion, connect, be real, be authentic, be vulnerable because they're taught to, and, and to talk and to do that sometimes at a group level. And I just think it's the raddest thing ever. When I see other people out in society who, you know, are doing the macho thing. Like I I see that as a weakness, actually. Like I see that as, as an underdeveloped person. And, um, I just love, and so anyway, we got to see that with Dave, who's a, you know, six foot something muscly tattooed biker gun toting dude. And he's talking about being spiritual and being vulnerable and, you know, just the deep, parts of being the, of the human experience. Right. Just laying his weaknesses out too. Yeah. I mean, I just, I told him I owning was so them. In, oh, owning him. I was so inspired by just, I mean, he didn't go into, you know, super detail about some things that had happened, but he just said, you know, I did something that, you know, isn't, isn't correct for a married, like a married it, man. I'm not, not, I'm not proud of. Yeah. Conduct that a married man should not yeah. be, Yeah, you know, it's a way that a married man should not be conducting yeah. himself. And it, you know, it's like, it takes so much courage to be able to just come out and say that. Yeah. And especially, I mean, he's, you know, with two women, right? Yeah. As where I'm recording the podcast and you're interviewing yeah. him. And I just was like, gosh, I like really respect you for yeah. just being so vulnerable and just honest owning and it. courageous and owning, yeah. right? His yeah. past mistakes and seeing how he's made amends for that. And that was, I think one of the biggest things that I really took away from Dave's episode actually, because being a normie, right? I'm not running in the 12 step circles and right. getting the opportunity yeah. to be around to people see it. who are doing so much amazing personal work right. on a daily basis. And so just seeing that, I'm, it was so refreshing. Like yeah. a real person. Yeah. Like, like wow, wow, you're in touch. You've done the work. And right. There's yeah. no masks and, yeah. you know, things to go through. It was just like, Hey, let me have a conversation with yep. a really amazing person. And that's definitely what Dave is. Yeah. He was amazing. And his experience getting sober and then with his best friend is just, it's crazy. I mean, these are the types of things that happen to us, right? But you know, that happened to him while he was sober. And what he talks about is having done the work, having done work by the time that happened and having some skills, some, some coping skills to move through that. But, you know, if you didn't hear Dave's, Dave's podcast, he, his best friend, right after he, um, Dave and his wife decided to separate, his best friend told him that he had been sleeping with his wife and that he told her everything that Dave had been doing and that he was in love with her. And then Shortly after there was a conference. No. Yes, you're correct. And I was just going to add in there. And at that time that he was disclosing this, uh, Dave had left. Right. Like we separated. Dave was sleeping on his couch. Dave was sleeping on the best friend's couch. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So they were living together. And yeah. And then the best friend, like literally shortly thereafter, like some amount of hours, Mm -hmm goes and hangs himself behind Dave's shop. And, you know, the, the, just the traumatic experience of that, of being angry with somebody, of, you know, betrayal, of then someone taking their life and feeling, of course, you know, it's your friend. Ultimately, there is some 
something that you cared about for them and just like that swirl of emotions and then being sober and then not having those, you know, not having the quick fix and having to actually feel those emotions. And we, he and his wife were so traumatized by that. They went through that adversity together that they unfiled for divorce and stayed together for three more years because everything was out on the table. And it goes to show you the power of getting all the secrets out on the table, right? Like just getting it all out on the table. And then they decide to stay together for three more years because who else is going to understand what the other was going, like no one else on the planet's going to understand. And there's that bond. And so it got me thinking, um, and you know, there were other things in his story, but it really got me thinking about the topic of trauma and trauma bonding in particular. And I wanted to bring on one of Lion Rock's amazing therapists. uh, His name is Leonardo Martinez. We call him Leo. He is a social worker and a phenomenal, phenomenal man. And I wanted to bring him on. He's here with us today to talk a little bit about you know, trauma bonding and what's the, you know, the difference between bonding in an adversarial situation and then having this trauma bond, which happens mostly in domestic violence relationships. Right. Yay, Leo. So Leo, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, Ashley. Good afternoon, or I think it's afternoon. Yeah. Yeah, it's about right. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. So we want to talk a bit about trauma, particularly trauma bonding mm-hmm. and adversarial trauma bonding. Am I getting that right? Yes. I, I believe... And are those the terms? From what I understand that you're talking about, I, those are the correct terms, even though adversarial bonding, the literature is a little bit different. It's more difficult to find things on it. Yeah. I, think, I, I found that. I think traumatic bonding is more the one that has been studied quite a bit because of interpersonal violence. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between, and and I'm going to put it in layman's terms, the difference between you and I are in a car accident together and we experience the trauma of the car accident together and no one else was in the car so they don't understand what that was like versus interpersonal violence in a relationship, which we tend to call domestic violence. Yeah, I think the difference, the main difference is that those that are experiencing traumatic bonding or are traumatically bonded, I guess is the term that you would use, are those that have been in an abuser, abused abuser relationship where there have been situations where they felt like there was no escape from their situation and there was some kind of intermittent or um, intermittent violence, intermittent threats. And so it's more of uh, a difficulty to leave the actual relationship because there's a lot more processing that has to go on with what am I going to do. There's an imbalance of power in the relationship, but also the fact that there is uh, times that you're, you know, you're being abused and also being praised and cared for quite a bit. Right. So I was reading about more of the technical aspects of this, and it was talking about how the abuser is the source of terror and the source of joy or, you know, happiness, and that they are also the source of, of despair and source of hope in the situation. And so people are getting a need met at some level in, you know, you're talking about those intermittent times. And so that's part of the cycle. I think the, the, the pieces, the intermittent part is very much like gambling. You know, you pull, you pull a lever and you don't know what you're going to get. And in this case, 
sometimes you lose, but the payoffs are very rewarding. And so in this case, the intermittent payoff is maybe one day I'll get the love and care that I so much desire. And it's, it creates a a conflict in my, in, in their thinking where they would stick around to see when the payoff is coming and it doesn't allow them to have time to process whether they could survive or it would be more beneficial for them to be out of the relationship. So can you talk to me about what um, adversarial bonding is? Because I think this was, this adversarial bonding was the topic that came up in Dave's story for the most part where, you know, a, a shared experience. And, and what is the line? I know this is two questions. What is the line between like we experience a difficulty together and we experience a trauma together? So I think that the difference between experiencing a difficulty together and experiencing a trauma together is that something actually physically happens to the person who experiences trauma. There's two levels of experiences, one being the mind and the body, second the body, whereas a difficulty is more of a problem that can be solved. There's actually a change in the physiology of the person experiencing a trauma. When they're sharing this in an adverse situation, the trauma that is experienced creates a collective bond where uh, I am experiencing this with you and therefore I'm relying on you to survive through this process. Mm, That's interesting. There's a reliance. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, the piece of difficulty, you know, when you're experiencing difficulty with someone is that everybody experiences, so everybody experiences things differently, right? Any, some Mm -hmm. event and an event that could be traumatic for you might not be traumatic for me. And I might have, you know, I might be really sensitive and, um, and so my anxiety and and I'm already showing up elevated. Mm -hmm. And so this additional trigger, you know, brings out something different in me than you. So it's interesting to think about like, what is a, you know, we go through, if you go through med school with someone, right, it's, 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 it's probably dramatic. It's definitely a difficulty with someone else, right? You're, you're trudging together Mm -hmm. and, how is, you know, when something like that could be, might've been traumatic for one person and difficult for another. So I just, I like to explore the idea that two people are experiencing or bonding over something traumatic. And in in this Mm -hmm. case, we're talking about a suicide of a mutually cared about person, Mm -hmm. which I do think is something that a lot of people are experiencing in particularly at this point, as I know it in America. Yeah, I think one of the key elements of the traumas that take it to that next level where it's more than a difficulty or a problem is the fact that the trauma challenges every belief system of what's safe and what's like, right? Okay, you know, what this is okay for me right now. I'm going to make it through this where a trauma would be like, I might not make it through this. Mm. And I don't know, I don't even, I don't have the emotional resources or the physical resources to be able to cope with the situation I'm facing. And that creates a fight or flight response in the brain, which elevates all kinds of hormones in the body, which does all kinds of things that actually can lead to flashbacks, intrusive memories, a lot of cognitive problems. And those cognitive problems are the features of things like post-traumatic stress disorder Mm -hmm. or uh, recalling the the traumatic experience and it could debilitate you, it could freeze you, it could create a lot of problems in social situations all around. And so uh, I think what you're explaining is what, you know, what happens when two people or more people, two or more people experience something that meets that criteria, meets that like, 
oh my gosh, am I going to make it through this? Right. And that again is the survival piece where I rely on that person to help me get through it. And then I carry on that bond after the event because we've experienced it. Right. A traumatic bond has to do with one individual being bonded to an abuser or someone that is creating some serious problems for that person. Um, But at some times, you know, showing love, showing care. Right. And so therefore the person is bonded to them in a way that they care, they care back. They want to protect that person because there is some reward they're getting from their abuser. Can you talk to us a bit about some of the stuff that you've seen working with the substance use disorder population and these two different types of, you know, traumas, the adversarial versus the the traumatic bonding, um, kind of what you've seen. Have you seen any patterns with people? Yeah. Um, yeah. Just your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think that for traumatic bonding, this doesn't serve the person, the abuser well. It keeps them locked into a cycle of the abuse. Abuse, the abuser or the the abused, the, the, the victim. Right. Okay. Or the survivor, as it's as the language is now, you know, the survivor of the interpersonal violence or domestic violence. They it doesn't serve them well because it keeps them locked in a cycle where um, people may be around them going, "What are you doing? Why are you going back to them? What, what's what's happening here?" And it's much more complicated than that because it's really not something that is a act of choice. And so what I see a lot is people that are in traumatic bonded relationships, that they struggle with figuring out the resources and the tools to get out of what is causing problems for them, which could include substance use, which could include, you know, problems assimilating into their communities, Mm. which could create problems within families, which could create dangerous situations for their children, all because, you know, they're hoping that this uh, payoff is going to happen again. And uh, they stay in, in that relationship much longer than most of us think they should. Now, when it comes to the adverse bonding, adverse situation bonding, we see that more as a survival um, and a beneficial bond. Right. Where the people that are experiencing this event, they can meet collectively, they can group together, they can talk about what they're going through. And it really is a source of inspiration and hope and, and collective like power. Right. So, I mean, similar to the 12 yeah, steps. Yeah, like I was going to say, like similar yeah. to AA, you know, um, and we were just talking about this, how the book says, uh, the, the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, we are like survivors of a shipwreck, right. you know, from the captain's table to the steerage, you know, basically from the, the poorest soul on the boat to the most wealthy, because the shared experience of fear, terror, pain, whatever the, yep. whatever the situation. Yep. That alone is something that gets imprinted and you can turn to those individuals for uh, support and hope and a way out, a way out of um, whatever pain was experienced. You know, you can see that as well in 9-11 survivors or, you know, people that have survived plane wrecks or anything, or maybe even seen, you know, you have these pop-up groups that come up for support groups that maybe have witnessed things or yeah. first responders. Like a particular, I know there was one for, um, we had an interviewee who was in the Las Vegas shooting, and I know that she attended per, in particular people who had been at that shooting, you know, that particular mass shooting, and mm-hmm. they had a support group for that one. So, yeah, so I can imagine that if I alone can't do this, then we can. And so for me, there is more strength in the adversarial, uh, the adversarial bond versus the, maybe the, I don't want to call it a deficit, but more of a challenge or a, an obstacle. 
for um, gaining back a new life when someone has been subject to abuse over a course of a lifetime or a relationship. How often do you think that, you know, and this is just in your experience, don't worry about, don't worry about the data on it. How often do you think that the people that you've worked with have trauma in their background, detrimental trauma? Oh, I would say the majority. I have heard some tremendously hurtful, saddening, terrifying stories that have been communicated to me on a group level, whether it be in treatment or individual, where the person is completely non-reactive to what they're saying to me. And I'm just witnessing something and these incredible emotions are like welling up in my stomach, in my throat, yeah. in my mind, hearing it. And they're talking about it like, like it's nothing. And I say to myself, you know, there's trauma here. And what can I do to help here, except for link them to resources? And I think there are many studies as well. I mean, there was one study about adverse childhood experiences, you know, that people, um, it's called the ACE study, where people that are, um, have diagnoses of substance abuse, um, substance use disorders, that the majority of them have reported adverse childhood experiences, which are just traumatic events that threaten their safety. And there are, you know, now new and emerging studies that are saying that recovery is all about connection. Yeah. So they've experienced disconnection in their life through adversity and what we can call trauma, whether it's been seen, heard, felt, or experienced. I think that, yeah. that falls into everything. Yeah, there's... Um I read a study that talked about if it's your own mother or father who's been the source of danger, then you are going to persist in believing that attachment equals danger. Can you talk to us about particularly why attachment equals danger for those people who've grown up in a, when, the, when the parents are the source of danger? Well, I think that, uh, well, I don't think, there's, there's studies and evidence that people form beliefs over a course of a lifetime. And so we, when we um, have these deep-seated beliefs, or what we call core beliefs, that all of our thought processes are based on these deep, deep, deep systems, that if I'm exposed to that as a child, then, and, I'm, and I'm experiencing danger as the norm, and those are the people that are my caretakers, and the people that I love, and the people that love me, and so therefore I would imagine that they would equate danger with care and love. And so I think that's right. what you're referring to. We talk about trauma a lot, and trauma comes in different forms for different people, right? We, did, we, we mentioned that earlier. There is emotional and verbal trauma there, you know, that causes real damage to people. And I think that is very underreported, for lack of a better term, that it, that it is downplayed, particularly if you're in, you know, depending on your culture and, and you know, your circumstance. Can you talk a little bit about why verbal abuse, emotional abuse, what, what, that, what that looks like, and maybe some of the examples that you've seen in your career, and why you think that we downplay that so much? Why, why don't we understand that that is as damaging? Yeah, I think when, when there are situations where there's no escape from whatever it is I'm experiencing, whether it be physical, whether it be emotional or verbal, things happen within the body. The brain, the body, again, they, they experience changes. And so if I am subject to physical abuse, it's more, it's something that's more, I would say, visible to others versus something that may be verbal, which is more maybe socially accepted, 
or maybe more culturally, accept, culturally accepted, depending on you know, what the background is. And so I may not be so quick to recognize it. I might not be so quick to do something about it. Emotional uh, trauma as well. I mean, emotional trauma could be something like... Like, like seeing things? Like preventing people from seeing loved ones. Okay, yeah. Right? Like if, I, if I'm in a relationship and I deny my partner seeing uh, their mother and then I discount uh, the, rela- or the emotion as something that is not justified or I say to simply forget it or not experience something that's completely natural to me and I'm forced to suppress, that also creates uh, physiological problems for me and psychological problems because I'm not able to process things effectively. And if it's at the hand of an abuser because of certain rules or norms that I'm expected to follow, I can become lost in those situations. And um, they can have, maybe in some cases, worse effects on uh, the emotional psyche of the person who comes to us saying that they feel traumatized or they're having other problems, thought problems, emotional problems, anxieties that are unexplained. This could all be part of that, just not really as much talked about because when we think abuse, we think physical, physical pain or, yeah. or harm coming to them from a batterer or whatever right. the case may be. Or like PTSD, we think, you know, you have to have gone to war. You know, it's a, that, that, that connection is there. Right. Yeah, PTSD, I mean, they used to call it shell-shocked. Right. Right. And then it evolved into, you know, the different terms and eventually PTSD. But PTSD could be just from repeated exposure from one traumatic event that absolutely changes all your belief systems instantaneously to repeated events over the course of time where my belief systems have completely changed to the point that that becomes my new reality and therefore I'm constantly on guard. Can you give us an example? I think of it as, oh, you yeah. mean like constant? Yeah, like what the two, two different examples of yeah, like what say, that would look like. Say, for example, someone who's a first responder. Someone yes. who is constantly Great exposed example. to, you know, uh, car accidents or um, uh, anything that has physical trauma that you're witnessing through vicarious trauma. That uh, we as therapists sometimes yeah. experience vicarious trauma. Like yeah. I had explained earlier, I've heard some terrifying stories. And if it wasn't for my, you know, my, my supervision, the, my own therapy that I seek, yeah. Um, I would hold on to some of those and sometimes not feel either the, the correctness or maybe the motivation to do something about it. And over time, that could manifest as PTSD, which could have the same symptoms that we see in what we think a war veteran survivor may see. Although clearly two different situations, um, symptoms similar, you know, irritability, flashbacks, trouble sleeping, constantly on guard. What about the intrusive thoughts? Can you talk intrusive about intrusive thoughts. thoughts? Can you talk about those? Intrusive thoughts are types of thinking patterns where um, they appear in our mind. Like, you know how we hear sentences in our head pretty automatically if, mm-hmm. if we're not too aware of them. Right. Um, it's just kind of how we live our life. Like, I'm thirsty. I'm going to go get a drink. Right. You know, because I'm thirsty. Intrusive thoughts are more like there is no stimuli. And they just keep coming into my thought process and um, polluting, I guess, my thinking to the point where I become terrified, stressed out, scared. Don't know how to make Um, them go Anxiety goes up. I don't know what to do about them, but they keep intruding into my life. Right. We were talking about different types of attachment, and I want to, because in psychology, bonding refers to the positive sense of connection and attachment 
that grows between people when they spend, you know, a lot of time together. And I'm wondering, you know, there's a lot of talk about attachment in our field. Can you talk a little bit about what attachment is, like what we're talking about, you know, when we talk about it in our field? And, you know, I found it really interesting to hear about the different types of attachment. That was, that was a new level. Yeah. So I think that attachment, what it refers to is how I have learned through the course of my life, how I should bond with others through secure attachments. If I had a healthy upbringing where, you know, I, a parent or a caregiver was appropriately showing me care and love and taking care of my, you know, my resources, my needs, also providing me with appropriate and healthy discipline and all these different things that are part of the development of any person. Whereas you have an insecure attachment where there has been some kind of break in that pattern. There's another um, type of attachment that we talk about is preoccupied attachment, where a person is constantly preoccupied with being in a relationship constantly. And again, because... Well, we call that a a love addict. Is that... I don't know if I would call it a love addict. I'm diagnosing the attachment (laughs) type. Right. And I could be, I could be off on, the, on, on exactly what they are because um, there's so many different literatures. You're human. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I know that another one is a fearful attachment where you're scared of intimacy, closeness with others. And there's another type of attachment that I, I can't think off the top of my head, but it has to do with just being completely not interested in relationships whatsoever. There was a stable attachment. Mm-hmm. Uh, secure attachment. Secure attachment. Mm-hmm. Oh, stable is secure. Yeah, I, I would say a stable attachment would be a secure attachment because okay, there's stability right. in it. Okay. The insecure attachment, again, there is some, some lack of uh, confidence, I guess you could say, in the ability to form relationships. You know, the relationships don't work out for them. They feel constantly in danger of losing uh, that relationship or not being able to thrive in a relationship. I mean, there's all types of different features that There's tons of literature on that I can get into reams and reams of the different features that they have. But I think the important part is, is that to understand that whatever the attachment that you have, there have very specific, they're very specific indicators for how susceptible you are to things like traumatic bonding. So for example, someone who has preoccupied attachment style uh, would be very susceptible to traumatic bonding because they're constantly preoccupied with the relationship itself. So they're obsessed with relationships, like being in romantic relationships? I'm careful to say obsessed because I, I believe obsession is a constant cycle of think of thinking where it's over and over again. They are very preoccupied with I, being in... I would say that was, I'm more comfortable with that one. <laughs> okay, okay. I, but again, it's because I don't know enough about... Um, to, to say, hey, I... I it, you is don't that want an obsessed me, We don't want to diagnose the... Right. I think that... Fair. Because it's not my expertise in the style of attachment, I, I, I want to be careful not to, to make certain things. Because say, for example, someone's listening to this and says, I obsess about this person all the time. I must be preoccupied relationship style. That's not, that's not the situation here. We, we don't know enough about it. It's just, I mean, we know enough about it, but just for this particular... Right. We don't uh, have, know enough about that person. Exactly. Yeah. We don't want to die. This is not, uh, you know, we're not diagnosing yeah. you. And also, I, I, I want to be careful to not place any blame on, on a person who is in interpersonal, interpersonal violence or domestic violence situation. Yeah. This is definitely something that most people, if not all people, in those situations, it's much more complicated than to put the locus of the responsibility. Actually, I think it's inappropriate to put the locus of responsibility on that person without the proper treatment 
without the proper resources put in front of them to be able to find a way out. Just to say, hey, you know what? Why don't you just get out? I think is very misinformed, if not, I would say ignorant. I'd love to hear you talk about, you know, what you told me about forgiveness. Yeah, I, I actually did some, you know, I, I, I'm a good social worker student, I guess. I always like to study things here and there. And I, I was also really interested in the idea of forgiveness and where that plays a part. Because as a recovering person myself, I found that forgiveness is quite healing. I've been able to move past, I would say, a lot of traumatic situations in my own life by being able to either forgive the situation or forgive myself or forgive others. What I did find is that in people that are experiencing traumatic bonding, that the concept of forgiveness, while it does have clear evidence that it can help in the recovery of certain situations, in this case, it doesn't seem to serve the person involved in the abusive cycle. That the forgiveness in itself, while it may sound like it would be healing for that person, actually can lead them back into the cycle of abuse. And that because they're seeking healing, because right? they're seeking healing out of the relationship, out of the situation itself. They're right. tr- they're trying and, to get and forgiveness better. is healing, and forgiveness is healing. And so they're trying to get better by by forgiving this person. Correct. Okay. And I, I think that there are cer- there are certain things that should be put in place for people that are seeking this type of forgiveness, like restorative justice. For example, people that there's a lot of clinical evidence or research about restorative justice for people that are in domestic violence relationships that, you know... Um, for so, people who don't know what restorative justice is. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to explain oh, yeah. it real quick. So, like, you have someone who gets, for example, is in a domestic violence situation or uh, relationship, and they arrest the perpetrator and take them away from the family. And this happens to be the breadwinner of the family mm. or um, and still the parent of the child and so they go and they're arrested, put in prison, whatever the situation is, of course, with different severities, and that the family is still hurting and suffering because of the absence of this person. So their restorative justice talks about creating a community situation where the community comes together to discuss basically the harm that was caused to the community, to the family. And not only the, perpetrate, not only the victim, but also the perpetrator gets to sit in these healing circles and discuss what this is and come up with plans with trained therapists so there could be community forgiveness and reassimilation into the family so that the family can heal together. I think that those are the new moves that are happening right now in these kinds of treatments and these kinds of ways to deal with the social ill. How does the isolation piece that so often happens in interpersonal violent, you know, or, or or just abusive relationships you know, a lot of them don't have community because they're isolated to that point. Correct. And again, the restorative justice piece is not indicated for every situation. Okay. It's okay. just for some. And um, it should just be another tool in the another tool. Another tool. And again, because sometimes forgiveness can create an obstacle for the person trying to get out of the, re- of, of the, of the abusive cycle. Right. The other thing, you mentioned isolation. And uh, we had talked about this earlier as well with the Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. And the four components of what is what, it? Captive. So basically, there has to, so Stockholm sim- syndrome is when a person that has been taken hostage um, is basically showing some kind of care or love for their captor. Captive bonding. Captive bonding. And so there's a lot of similarities between traumatic bonding and Stockholm syndrome. And there's four things that were very clearly needed for Stockholm Syndrome to occur. The first one was there had to be some threat of 
harm, uh, actually, that they were going to kill you. Like some. It had to be lethal. That yeah, there was a threat of lethality. Okay. That you were you they were going to kill you if they okay. didn't get whatever they were trying to get. The okay. second one is is that they isolated you. Mm-hmm. They isolated you. The third one is is that there was no escape except through the captor themselves. Mm. So there was a reliance on this captor, right, to be able to get out of the situation. And lastly, the fourth feature of of this would be that the captor at some point in time showed some kind of care or intimacy or closeness, whether it be through uh, sharing a story of maybe their struggle and thanking them for being there and supporting them or by providing them food occasionally or giving them some kind of prize or reward for doing certain nice things. And so again, that intermittent payoff, that intermittent payoff by someone who is basically threatened to kill you during the Stockholm situation, it was actually named after, um, I believe it was a bank robbery or something like that in the 70s that the actual captors refused to testify against, or excuse me, the hostages refused to testify against their captors and were actually sticking up for them and protecting them. And these were people that were just recently being told they were going to get killed by them. It was pretty fascinating. Yeah, that is really, I mean, that that is really fascinating. And it's, you know, having been in an abusive relationship, yeah. I, I really do deeply understand how that happened. You know, I really it's wild to think about what, when you're in situations where you're threatened that way, you're isolated. I mean, I I think isolation is a huge component of how this happens. Yeah. And I I think also keep in mind that we're talking about situations that involve the human mind. And it's really easy for us to say, wow, I would not be in that situation. I would never let that happen to me. But there are deep changes that occur in the decision-making and processing of the brain, whether it be the frontal lobe or the central brain or the sympathetic nervous system, stuff that is absolutely out of our control. Hmm. So when you relate to it, there's that adversity bonding, right? So that's where you find the bonding to people that have been through it. And that's why these support groups are so powerful in helping people get out. Yeah, I love that. So Leo, if people want, you know, if people are wondering, listening to this, wondering, oh, you know some of this is relatable. I think I may have experienced some of this, or I have those symptoms. I have intrusive thoughts. Um, I just never knew what they were called or, you know, it's just, they have questions about it. Did I have a traumatic childhood? And they don't, you know, they don't know where to start. Um, and maybe they don't want to, you know, read 10 books on it. What, what, what kind of resources or what, what can people do if they, if they want help for this? Well, I think there's a number, well, thank you for the question. I was, I was just sitting here and thinking about whether you were going to ask this question or not and what to say, because it's, it's a question that's quite often asked. And I think it really comes down to resources, like what resources does the individual have? Many people that are experiencing trauma or have trauma um, either don't have any resources or don't know where to start. So I think the first one that's pretty well known, if there's veterans, there's always the VA. You know, the VA can give you those kinds of assistance. They can do assessments. They can help find out if it's something that you are experiencing. The other is that there are many hotlines or other ways to contact uh, nonprofit services, things like that, for people that, again, are limited in resources that would be glad to provide assessments and link people to professionals that can help you out. Uh, another thing, hey, uh, Lion Rock is, uh, has, in, uh, you know, has this new trauma track that they're developing. You would be calling them directly, and they could set up an assessment to see if it's something that they would be able to help you with or if it's something that you're experiencing as well. So again, there's a number of different avenues, again, that it's just a matter of, you know, picking up the phone or 
maybe doing a search online to see which is the one that best fits you. I have two questions about that. One, does the VA treat trauma that isn't related to military experience, say childhood? So I don't know the answer to that question. I wouldn't think that that's the case. But again, I, I don't know enough about the VA. But okay. I mean, of course, um, uh, which is kind of interesting because I am a veteran, which says a little bit about the system. Uh, I <laughs> Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, but I won't get there. Yeah. I won't go there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Another pod. Yeah, that's another pod. Uh, so I would say that my thoughts are that it would be for people that have experienced trauma in war or that are coming back from battle um, that are probably going to be taking the priorities for them. But again, I don't know the right, answer. Right, because they have limited. Right. And what about, do you know, um, you know, again, you don't have to name any, but are there probably surveys or tests you can take online that kind of tell you? Yeah, I think that with anything that's online, I would be cautious. Um, I would make sure that they're linked to a reputable organization like Lion Rock, you know, to make sure that we, it is an assessment that is clinically backed. Right. It's okay. not just something that, uh, you know, you, someone developed in a Google form. Yeah. In, you in don't want to do a self-assessment on Napster. Right. Right. Again, any connection that we can have towards a professional that knows what they're doing in the with this particular situation or disorder is something that uh, I would encourage. Awesome. Well, that was awesome. I think we need to have experts on here all the time. Yes. Leo, Love that. Thank you so much. Yes. That thank was, you. I sat here and just soaked up so much of the information that you were saying and it helps, you know, cause we do kind of like our high level overview and mm -hmm. some of our thoughts and opinions, you know, based off of what we're hearing and seeing, but having somebody else in the booth who has the, clinical experience is just so amazing. Really appreciate your time and, and, um, hope that this helps someone. Yeah. Definitely. Someone's. someone's. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Have a great week. And Oh, we've got a great guest coming up. Next oh week. gosh. You guys hold on to your seats. And if you're at the Oprah show, look under them. <laughs> We're okay. really excited about next week. And if you have feedback oh, yes. for us, if you want to hear more experts on these after the episodes, please email us. Let us know. Podcast at lionrockrecovery.com if you want to hear more of a particular thing. And also, uh, if you've started the search for these resources and you're looking for some help and some hope and you're having trouble finding something on your own, we've had people reach out to us plenty of times and, and we're happy to point you towards some of our Lion Rock resources. Absolutely. And, if, and, and, and other resources right. too, depending on, you know, what you're looking for. It's, it's definitely, Absolutely. we are, we are here to help. We're here to help and point you in the right direction and um, whatever, whatever you're needing. So reach out. You're not alone. There is lots and lots of hope. The end. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. 
Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 